0: many voices, one station. KCSB 91.9 FM, Santa Barbara. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara, 91.9 and I'm Hannah Wolfe. Today we will be hearing stories from both a very popular science fiction author and a one-hit wonder. I'll be reading Freedom of Race by Anne McCaffrey and I'll Kill You Tomorrow by Helen Huber, both published in 1953. In today's hour, we are focusing on 1953 and we'll be playing avant-garde music from that year. It's also KCSB's 56th annual fund drive, so please join and become a member. You can donate by credit card by calling 805-893-2424. That's 805-893-2424. The intro today was the main title from uh, The Beast from 2000 Fathoms, which was based on a Ray Bradbury short story. Uh, the score was composed by David Buteloff. Uh The uh, film was the first live-action film featuring giant, a giant monster awakening brought about by an atomic bomb detonation, which preceded by Godzilla by 16 months. Uh, the film's financial success helped spawn a genre of giant monster films in the 1950s. Currently, we're listening to the 2016 remix of Astrology by Pierre Henry, uh, which was the first film music using music concrète from uh, for Jean Gremlin's film Astrology. Uh, music concrète is music constructed by mixing recorded sounds, which was first developed by experimental composers in the 1940s. So, just a reminder, it's KCSB's 56th annual fund Drive, bringing flavor to your ears for 56 years. Um, You can donate by credit card by calling 805-893-2424. I wanted to join KCSB because I connected with the radio station's mission statement, which emphasizes that independent, non-commercial, educational um, radio giving a voice to underrepresented communities. I had been really frustrated by the lack of female representation in science fiction literature. Because KCBSB is non-commercial. Freedom of the Race by Anne McCaffrey. The labor pains were increasing. The dainty Martian doctor arrived and examined her briefly. He chattered away at the Martian nurse in charge... Although she understood Martian, Jean's mind registered the conversation dimly, for the odd amnesia of birthing dulled her to everything. The next spasm contracted her womb. She breathed deeply, slowly, as she'd been taught, expanding abdominal muscles to give the womb more freedom. All her energy was concentrated on breathing and relaxing, but slowly the doctor's words reached her mind. Such a healthy animal and an excellent breeder. I have high hopes that everything will go all right in this case. If so, I'll insist that the commissioner use her again. It's against our policy, but we are desperate. So, thought Jean in her semi stupor, that's what happened to the girls who didn't come back to the center. "'They died, ensuring life of these multiple monsters. "'They weren't set free. "'Venny was right, and we wouldn't believe her. "'She must be dead, too.' "'Again, the Martian nurse ordered her to turn over, "'and Jean felt the cold metal of the fetoscope "'on her swollen abdomen. "'She tried unsuccessfully to breathe deeply "'as another contraction gripped her, "'and she wanted so to turn back to her side.' It wouldn't matter what she wanted. She was just an animal incubator. There would be no narcotic eased to this birth. There was too much danger of asphyxiating the Martian, get whose lungs at birth were curiously delicate. Oh, ingenious conquerors, she thought. You arrive on our good green earth from your desiccated world. You end our petty national. Squabbles by enslaving us. All the indignities and offices of slavery are heaped on every head, and all the pale with banality against your crowning psychological coup. You make us bear not half breeds towards which we might conceivably grow attached, but your own spawn that your fragile wives could not carry on our oxygen loaded terra. Could there be a greater indignity? How she and the other girls had prayed for failure in implantation, devised schemes for miscarriage, for some small way to abort the fetus successfully, even with the penalty of slow burn. Jean vividly remembered the slow burning she had to witness two years ago when she was 16. It had taken agonizing, shrieking hours for that girl to be consumed by the creeping, crawling, crisping organism. The pains crowded in on each other with so precious little time before the rest. Rest that meant survival for her. She couldn't be far from the transition to second-stage labor, she thought with a hope. Her fellow broodmares... ...had said it was easy... ...that a Martian was so small it emerged easily. That was before the vogue of multiple births. The rare instances of multiple births to a Martian... ...were always stillborn... ...until the experiment of transplanting twin placenta... ...into a Terran womb... ...resulting in successful birth of twins... After that, the fad was on. With little scientific help, twins, triplets, quintuplets of whichever sex desired were reluctantly born by Terran girls. In the midst of this mirthless reminiscence, Jean felt an irresistible urge to bear down, and she responded automatically she heard around her sudden movements, excited, brusque orders from the Martian nurse who had never left her side for four months. She was conscious of several more Martian voices now and very bright lights. She opened her eyes wearily and saw she was in the delivery room, her bed being pushed against a slab table. Beside her, the Martian parents of the get within her their odd yellow wolf eyes gleaming in the dark. Then she felt the hand of the Terran nurses on her, moving her to the delivery table. The girl at her head fumbled to catch her under the arms and was severely reprimanded by the nervous Martian doctor. You'll burn slow if you harm her, he shouted in his high whining voice. It'll be all right, the nurse replied, with unexpected firmness, for a Terran answering a Martian. The nurse bent low and said softly in Jean's ear, Don't worry, baby, everything will be all right. Another batch of dead, deformed offspring for our eager Martian liberators. Jean snapped alert despite an excruciating pain. The Terran nurse smiled, a grim, triumphant smile. German measles, she whispered. Eighty percent of Earth women who catch the disease from their third to fifth month of pregnancy produce children with some defect or deformity, deaf-mutes, Mongolian idiots, and blind. In the case of fragile Martian offspring, the total is 100%. There hasn't been a normal Martian baby born in six months. Jean remembered six months ago when she had a slight fever and a flushing of skin. It was too mild for the Martians to notice and over so quickly that she hadn't complained. Pregnant women's greatest fear was now their savior. This was only the beginning. Tara would be free. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9. And I'm Hannah Wolfe. That was Freedom of Race by Anne McCaffrey, which was first published in Science Fiction Plus in October 1953. Well, right now, it's KCSB's 56th annual fun drive, bringing flavor to your ears for 56 years. You can donate online with PayPal at KCSB.org. KCSB is an educational licensee with educational content providing training tools and a megaphone to university students and the community. Uh, UCSB is a place where people get their first start. In the 40s and 50s, many up-and-coming science fiction writers got their start in pulp magazines. And McCaffrey's first story was published in Science Fiction Plus, October 1953, the story you just heard. Um, That magazine only ran for a year. Sadly, the publication rejected her other submissions. Her later short stories, The Lady in the Tower, as well as her novellas, The Ship Who Sang, and We're Search, all were translated into foreign languages and became uh, series At the time of writing Freedom of Race, her first short story, she was inspired by the civil rights movement and her attempt to get pregnant, which made her think that one of the most basic rights is to have a child of your own species. Independent media allows people to get their first start and realize their dreams. KCSB provides training, tools, and a megaphone for people to do such. Uh, You can donate to KCSB by credit card by calling 805-893-2424. That's 805-893-2424. If you donate $50 or more, $25 for students, you can choose a thank you gift. We have volunteers in the studio waiting to take your calls. Thank you for supporting KCSB. Um, so I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about Anne McCaffrey. Uh, she was born in 1926, later immigrated to Ireland. Uh, she was the first woman to win the Hugo Award for fiction and the first woman to win the Nebula Award. She won the Hugo for her novella We're Search, which was published in Analog Science Fiction and Fact, 1950, sorry, 1968. And she won the Nebula for its sequel, Dragon Riders, in 1969. Her 1978 novel, The White Dragon, became one of the first science fiction books to appear on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, She said, as a woman, she never had any trouble with editors and publishers. She had trouble getting male readers to believe that she was serious and a good enough writer to interest them. Her first novel, Restoree, was published in 1967, which was written as a tongue-in-cheek protest, utilizing uh, sorry—utilizing uh, yeah, as many of the standard thud-and-blunder clichés as possible with one new twist. The heroine was the viewpoint character, and she's always Joanna on the spot. Anne wrote the novel because she said, after seven years of voracious reading in the field, she had been up to the eye teeth with vapid women. In the background, we've been listening to John Cage's Williams mix, which he composed in 1952 and 1953, which was created for eight simultaneous played independent quarter-inch magnetic tapes. This was considered the first octophonic music because it was played back through eight speakers which surrounded the audience. Um, Next, I'm going to be reading I'll Kill You Tomorrow by Helen Huber, which was first published in IF, November 1953. (laughs) were utterly, ambitiously evil. Their line of defense, apparently, was absolutely impregnable. I'll Kill You Tomorrow by Helen Huber It was not a sinister silence. No silence is sinister until it acquires a background of understandable menace. Here, there was only the night of quiet maternity... The silence of noiseless rubber heels on the hospital corridor floor. The faint brush of starched white skirts brushing through doorways into darkened and semi-darkened rooms. But there was something wrong with the silence in the basket room of the maternity. The glass-walled room containing rows on row The tiny hopes of tomorrow. The curtain was drawn across the window through which, during visiting hours, peered the proud fathers who did the hoping. The nightlight was dim. The silence should not have been there. Lori Kane, standing in the doorway, looked out over the rows of silent baskets and felt... Her blonde hair tightened at the roots. The tightening came from instinct, even before her brain had a chance to function, from the instincts and training of a registered nurse. Thirty-odd babies grouped in one room, and complete silence. Not a single whimper, not one tiny cry of protest against the annoying phenomenon of birth. 30 babies dead? That was the thought that flashed unbidden into Lori's pretty head. The absurdity of it followed swiftly, and Lori moved on the rubber soles between a line of baskets. She bent down and explored with practiced fingers a warm living bundle of in a white basket. The feeling of relief was genuine. Relief, even from an absurdity, is a welcome thing. Lori smiled and bent closer. Staring up at Lori from the basket were two clear blue eyes. Two eyes, steady and fixed in a round baby face. An immobile, pink baby face housed two blue eyes that stared up into Lori's with a quiet concentration that was chilling. Lori said, what's the matter with you? She spoke in a whisper and was addressing herself. She'd gone short on sleep lately. The only way really to get a few hours with Pete. Pete was an intern at General Hospital and the kind of a homely, grinning carrot top a girl like Lori could put into dreams as the center of a satisfactory future. But all this didn't justify a case of jitters in the basket room. Lori said, Hi, short stuff, and lifted baby Newcomb, male, out of his crib for cuddling. Baby Newcomb didn't object. The blue eyes came closer, the weak old eyes with the hundred-year-old look. Lori laid the bundle over her shoulder and smiled into the dimness. You want to be president, Shorty? Lori felt the warmth of a new life, felt the little body wriggle in snug contentment. I wouldn't advise it. Tough job. Baby Newcomb twisted in his blanket. Lori stiffened. Snug contentment? Lori felt two tiny hands clutch and dig into her throat. Notches pawing baby hands, little fingers that reached and explored for the windpipe. She uncuddled the soft bundle, held it out. There were the eyes. She chilled. No imagination here. No spectra from lack of sleep. Ancient murder-hatred glowing in the newborn's eyes. Careful, you fool! You'll drop this body! A thin, piping voice, a shrill symphony in malevolence. Fear weakened Lori. She found a chair and sat down. She held the boy-baby in her hands... Training would not allow her to drop baby Newcomb. Even if she had fainted, she would not have let go. The shrill voice. It was stupid of me. Very stupid. Lori was cold, sick, mute. Very stupid. These hands are too fragile. There are no muscles in the arms. I couldn't have killed you. Please, I... Dreaming? No, I'm surprised at... Well, at your surprise. You have a trained mind. You should have learned long ago to trust your senses. I don't understand. Don't look at the doorway. Nobody's coming in. Look at me. Give me a little attention and I'll explain. Explain? Lori pulled her eyes down to the cherubic little face "'as she parroted dully. "'I'll begin by reminding you "'that there are more things in existence "'than your obscene medical books tell you about. "'Who are you? "'What are you? "'One of those things! "'You're not a baby.' "'Of course I'm not! I'm—' "'The beastly, brittle voice drifted into silence "'as though halted by an intruding thought.' Then the thought voiced, voiced with a yearning at once pathetic and terrible. It would be nice to kill you! Some day I will! Some day I'll kill you! If I can find you! Why? Why? Insane words in an insane world. But life had not stopped even though madness had taken over. Why? The voice was matter of fact again. No more time for pleasant daydreams. I'm something your books didn't tell you about. Naturally, you're bewildered. Did you ever hear of a bodiless entity? Lori shuddered in silence. You've heard of bodiless entities, of course. But you denied their existence in your smug world of precise, tidy detail. I'm a bodiless entity. I'm one of a swarm. We've come from a dimension your mind wouldn't accept even if I explained it, so I'll save words. We of the Swarm seek unfoldment, fulfillment, even as you in your stupid blind world. Do you want to hear more? I... You're a fool, but I enjoy practicing with these new vocal cords, just as I enjoyed flexing the fingers and muscles... That's why I revealed myself. We are basically, of course, parasites. In the dimension where we exist in profusion, evolution has provided for us. There, we seek out and move into a dimensional entity far more intelligent than yourself. We destroy it in a way you wouldn't understand, and it is not important that you should. In fact... I can't see what importance there is in your existing at all. You plan to kill all these babies? Let me congratulate you. You finally managed to voice an intelligent question. The answer is no. We aren't strong enough to kill them. We dwelt in a far more delicate dimension than this one, and all was in proportion. There was our difficulty when we came here. We could find no entities weak enough to take possession of until we came upon this room full of infants. Then if you're helpless, what do we plan to do? That's quite simple. This material, entities will grow. We will remain attached, ingrained, so to speak, when the bodies enlarge sufficiently. Thirty potential assassins... Lori spoke again to herself, then hurled the words back into her own mind, and her sickness deepened. The shrill chirping. What do you mean, potential? The world expresses a doubt. Here there is none. The entity's chuckle sounded like a baby, content over a full bottle. Thirty certain assassins! But why must you kill... Lurie was sure. The tiny shoulders shrugged. Why? I don't know. I never thought to wonder. Why must you join with a man and propagate someday? Why do you feel sorry for what you term an unfortunate? Explain your instincts and I'll explain mine. Lori felt herself rising. Stiffly, she put baby Newcomb back into his basket. As she did so, a ripple of shrill, jerky laughter cracked through the room. Lori put her hands to her ears. You know I can't say anything. You'd you'd keep quiet. They'd call me mad. Precisely. Malicious laughter, like driven sleet, cut into her ears as she fled from the room. We're going to take a little break from the story, but hold your horses. I'll get back to it in a couple of minutes. In the background, we've been listening to Stockhausen's Slag Trio, which is a chamber music work for piano and two timpanists, uh, each playing three timpani, um, which was composed by um, Stockhausen in 1952 and first performed in munich march of 1953 uh this is books and blondes with reagan's a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on kcsb fm santa barbara 91.9 and i'm hannah wolf it's kcsb's 56th annual fund drive uh you can donate by credit card by calling 805-893-2424 that's 805-893-2424. KCSB is an independent, non-commercial format, free format radio station. Uh, independent media is incredibly important to allow new media and new ideas and alternative views to be expressed. Uh, the development of American science fiction as a self-conscious genre started in 1926 with an amazing stories magazine founded the first magazine devoted exclusively to science fiction stories Uh, Though science fiction magazines had been published in sweden and germany before amazing stories was the first english language magazine to solely publish science fiction until about 1950 pulp science fiction magazines were the only way american science fiction authors could publish new stories and only small specialty presses publish science fiction hardcover books, all reprinted magazine stories. Uh, 1938 to 1946 approximately is considered the golden age of science fiction, with 1947 to 1958 as the later golden age. Asimov said that the dropping of the atomic bomb in 1945 made science fiction respectable to the general public, which caused the pulp magazine genre to implode, dropping from 46 different magazines to less than a dozen by the end of the decade. With science fiction becoming more of a reality, causing it to rise in popularity, science fiction also became more conservative. Independent media is incredibly important to allow new ideas and alternative views to be expressed. KCSB is a prime example of independent media and radio. You can donate by credit card by calling 805-893-2424. We have volunteers in the studio waiting to take your calls. That's 805-893-2424. Each $100 contributed will automatically qualify a listener sponsor for one of our grand prize drawings. Uh, Thank you for supporting KCSB. Next, we're going to be finishing I'll Kill You Tomorrow by Helen Huber. Last, we left our heroine. Peter Larchmont, M.D., was smoking a quick cigarette by an open fire escape door on the third floor. He turned as Lori came down the corridor, flipped his cigarette down into the alley, and grinned. Women shouldn't float on rubble heels, he said. A man should have warning. Laurie came closer. Kiss me, kiss me hard. Pete kissed her, then held her away. You're trembling. Anticipation, pet? He looked into her face, and the grin faded. Lori, what is it? Pete! Pete, I'm crazy! I've gone mad! Hold me! He could have laughed, but he had looked closely into her eyes, and he was a doctor. He didn't laugh. Tell me. Just stand here. I'll hang on to you. And you tell me. The babies, they've gone mad, she clung to him. Not exactly that. Something's taken them over, something terrible. Oh, Pete, nobody would believe me. I'll believe the end result, he said quietly. That's what I'm for, Angel. When you shake like this, I'll always believe. But I'll have to know more, and I'll hunt for an answer. There isn't any answer, Pete. I know. We'll still look. Tell me more first. There isn't any more, her eyes widened as she stared into his with the shock of a new thought. Oh, Lord, one of them talked to me, but maybe he or it won't talk to you. Then you'll never know for sure. You'll think I'm... Stop. Quit predicting what I'll do. Let's go to the nursery. They went to the nursery and stayed there for three-quarters of an hour. They left with the tinny laughter filling their minds, and the last words of the monstrous entity. We'll say no more, of course. Perhaps even this incident has been indiscreet. But it's in the form of a celebration. Never before has a whole swarm gotten through. Only a single entity on rare occasions. Pete leaned against the corridor wall and wiped his face with the sleeve of his jacket. "We're the only ones who know," he said. "Or we'll ever know." Laurie pushed back a lock of his curly hair. She wanted to kiss him, but this didn't seem to be the place or the time. "We can never tell anyone. We'd look foolish." We've got a horror on our hands, and we can't pass it on. What are we going to do? Lori asked. I don't know. Let's recap a little. Got a cigarette? They went to the fire door and dragged long and deep on the two from Lori's pack. They'll be quiet from now on. No more talking. Just baby squalls. "'And thirty little assassins will go into thirty homes,' Laurie said. "'All dressed in soft pink and blue, all filled with hatred, "'waiting, biding their time, growing more clever,' she shuddered. "'The electric chair will get them all eventually.' "'But how many will they get in the meantime?' "'Pete put his arms around her and drew her close.' and whispered into her ear. There's nothing we can do. Nothing. We've got to do something. Lori heard again the tin, brittle laughter following her, taunting her. It was a bad dream. It didn't happen. We'll just have to sleep it off. She put her cheek against his The rising stubble of his beard scratched her face. She was grateful for the rough touch of solid reality. Pete said, The shock will wear out of our minds. Times will pass. After a while, we won't believe it ourselves. That's what I'm afraid of. It's got to be that way. We've got to do something. Pete lowered his arm wearily. Yes, we've got to do something. Where there's nothing that can be done. What are we, miracle workers? We've got to do something. Sure. Finish out the watch and then get some sleep. Lori awoke with the lowering sun in her window. It was blood red. She picked up the phone by her bedside Room 307, Residence Extension. Pete answered drowsily. Lori said, Tell me, did I dream? Or did it really happen? I was going to ask you the same thing. I guess it happened. What are you doing? Lying in bed? So am I, but two different beds. Things are done all wrong. Want to take a chance and sneak over? I've got an illegal coffee pot. Leave the doors locked. Lori put on the coffee. She showered and got into her slip. She was brushing her hair when Pete came in. He looked at her, and extended beckoning, clutching fingers. The hell with phantoms. Come here. After a couple minutes, Lori pulled away and poured the coffee She reached for her uniform. Pete said, Don't put it on yet. Too dangerous, leaving it off? He eyed her dreamily. I'll dredge up willpower. I'll also get scads of fat, rich clients. Then we'll get married, so I can assault you legally. Laurie studied him. You're not even listening to yourself. What is it, Pete? What have you dreamed up? Okay, I've got an idea. You said something would have to be done. What? A drastic cure for a drastic case, with maybe disaster as the end product. Tell me. I'll tell you a little, but not too much. Why not at all? Because if we ever land in court, I want you to be able to say, under oath... He didn't tell me what he planned to do. I don't like that. I don't care if you like it or not. Tell me, what's the one basic thing that stands out in your mind about these entities? That they're... Fragile? Yes, fragile. Give me some more coffee. Laurie demanded to know what was in Pete's mind. All she got was kissed, and she did not see Pete again until 11 o'clock that night. He found her in the corridor in maternity and motioned her towards the nursery. He carried a tray under a white towel. He said, You watch the door. I'm going inside. I'll be about half an hour. What are you going to do? You stay out here and mind your business. Your business will be to steer... Any nosy party away. If you can't, make noise coming in. Doc Pete turned away and entered the nursery. Lori stood at the doorway, in the silence under the brooding nightlight, and prayed. Twenty-five minutes later, Pete came out. His face was white and drawn. He looked like a man who had lately had a preview of Hell's inverted pleasures. His hands trembled. The towel still covered the tray. He said, Watch them close. Don't move ten steps from here. He started away, turned back. All hell is scheduled to break loose in the hospital shortly. Let's hope God remains in charge. Lori saw the sick dread of his heart under his words. It could have been a major scandal. An epidemic of measles on the maternity floor of a modern hospital indicates the unforgivable medical sin, carelessness. It was hushed up as much as possible, pending the time when the top people could shake off the shock and recover their wits. The ultimate recovery of 30 babies was a tribute to everyone concerned. Wayne, Dunn, Doc Pete, drank coffee in Lori's room. Lori gave him three lumps of sugar and said, "'But are you sure the sickness killed the entities?' "'Quite sure. Somehow they knew when I made the injections. "'They screamed. They knew they were done for.' "'It took court courage. Tell me, why are you so strong, so brave?' Why are you so wonderful? Cut it out. I was scared stiff. If one baby had died, I'd have gone through life weighing the cure against the end. It isn't easy to risk doing murder, however urgent the need. She leaned across and kissed him. And you were all alone. You wouldn't let me help. Was that fair? He grinned. And sobered. But I can't help remembering what that, that invisible monster said. Never before has a whole swarm gotten through, only a single entity on rare occasions. I can't help wonder what happens to those single entities. I think of the newspaper headlines I've seen child kills parent in sleep, youth slays father. I'll probably always wonder, and I'll always remember. Lori got up and crossed to him and put her arms around him. Not always, she whispered. There will be times when I'll make you forget. For a little while, anyhow. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was I'll Kill You Tomorrow by Helen Huber, a pretty silly story, uh, which was first published in If November 1953. Uh, In the background, we've listened to Five Incantations, Part 5, Wild and Strident for Piano, composed by... Giacinto Scelisi, um, and performed by Kathleen Sipov. Uh, Giacinto Scelisi was an Italian composer who also wrote surrealist French post poetry. Um, after that, we heard Three Score Set, uh, the second part, um, composed by Joji. Yusasa, uh, performed by Ikaro Nodaria. Yusa first became interested in music when, while a pre-medical student at Keio University. And in 1952, he joined a young artists group, uh, Jaiken Kobo um, Experimental Workshop 1951 to 1957 in Tokyo an organization for the exploration of new directions in the arts, including multimedia. I felt like the show was getting a little heavy on the Western composers, so this piece and the next are from the Japanese avant-garde. So, um... It's KCSB's 56th Annual Fund Drive. Uh, You can donate online with PayPal at kcsb.org or on phone with with your credit card by calling 805-893-2424. That's 805-893-2424. Um, by supporting KCSB, you're giving a platform to unheard voices and forgotten stories. KCSB is open to both students and community members to have shows. This show specifically focuses on exposing female science fiction writers from the golden age of science fiction. Women in the genre are typically portrayed as airheaded love interests or a dangerous seductress in stories from a male protagonist's point of view. Female writers will tell stories about the future from a different point of view, covering different topics. Science and technology has been seen as a primarily male field, and we're still fighting for equal opportunities. Um, as a female computer scientist and researcher, I think it is incredibly important for young girls to know that computer science and engineering is an option. Anne McCaffrey was driven to write a different story type of story because she was frustrated with the stories where quote, uh, women were provided as decorative broads with no role at all in the action of the story except to be stupid enough to have a scientist explain what it was about. By KCSB focusing on giving a platform to unheard voices and forgotten stories, we can see our future from many people's point of view. You can donate to KCSB by credit card by calling 805-893-2424. That's 805-893-2424. Uh, the average contribution for non-student donors is $75. Uh, we have volunteers in the studio who are waiting to take your calls. Thank you for supporting KCSB. Um, so I thought I'd talk to you about some themes in the two stories. We listened to um, Freedom of Race by Anne McCaffrey and I'll Kill You Tomorrow by Helen Huber. Uh, there were two kind of common themes. One, which I didn't think about until, like, reading them, that both of them talk about killing alien races with diseases. Um, so we had the measles um, in the first story. in um, and- The other common theme in both of them is that they are stories about women and childbirth and infants. Um, This is a perspective of the future in science fiction which is particular to women. I noticed in the short stories by female authors that I had been reading that they write pregnant women as main characters. This was supported when I looked through Betty King's book, Women of the Future, Female Main Characters in Science Fiction. She summarized and categorized stories with female main characters, which were published originally typically in pulp magazines, but then later published outside of them. So she wanted to have ones that were more available. Um, I found that in the golden age of science fiction, all of the stories that she spoke about that involved birth or infants were written by women. that Only a Mother by Judith Merrill in 1948. When the bow Breaks, co-authored by C.L. Moore in 1944. In both of those stories, um, Radiation Mutates the Child. Uh, the Wind People by Marion Zimmer Bradley in 1958, where the main character mysteriously gets pregnant on a strange planet. Um, later, there was The Pollinators of Eden, the only one that I found in um, King's book, written by a male author, uh, John Boyd in 1969, and the male character gives birth to a bouncing baby seed pod. Uh, so, kinda went a little, little off there. Um, the mystical pregnancy in science fiction is a trope we've seen throughout fiction and literature, where a woman becomes either pregnant due to mystical means or something supernatural happens to the woman while she's pregnant. This is seen in science fiction television like Star Trek Next Generation, Scar- Stargate SG-1, X-Files, Doctor Who. Um, most of those cases, though, the uh, character getting pregnant is not the main character, and it's almost done as like a way to torture female characters in science fiction. Anyway. Uh, we're currently listening to Symphoneta, uh, Introduction and Fuga, composed by Yoshira Vladimir Irino and performed by the NHK uh, Symphony Orchestra. Irino was born in the Soviet uh, Vladivostok, but he attended high school and college in Tokyo. So we'll listen to a little bit more of that. Actually, we just finished this. Um, This is the ending credits for uh, The Beast. What is it? This is the uh, exit credits for uh, The Beast from 2000 Fathoms, composed by David Butala. Um, This has been Bucks and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9. In light of the recent fires and mudslides that have affected our community, it's important to recognize the role that radio has during an emergency. When fires, worsening air quality, and mudslides throughout the local area, KCSB was here for you, providing key updates on road closures, evacuation zones, where to obtain N95 masks, and more, even staying on air during power outages. If you appreciate the role we've had in helping the area survive and thrive in the aftermath of the events, consider making a donation to our fungi from February 21st to March 2nd by calling in at 805-893-2424 or online at kcsb.org. Your contributions play an essential part in our continued operation, helping us to help you during emergency events such as these. Thank you from your local, non-commercial, independent community radio station, 91.9 KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara.